When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The time is 5.20 a.m. The morning of April 6th, 2022 in Kiev, Ukraine. And Kiev stands unencircled and unmolested by Russian forces. Holy simoleons. Welcome to another special episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. I'm Eric, your host. And once again, I'm pulling out my old foreign policy, IR, tank counting, etc. skills uh, to bring you my best kind of uh, understanding of what's going on in Ukraine and what we can learn from it. Um, I have to start by opening that we are, I'm sure most of you are aware, we are just starting to see some of the unspeakable horror that the Russian troops have uh, enacted, brought to uh, the suburbs of Kiev, and we can only anticipate what further terror and brutality uh, have befallen the people of Ukraine elsewhere under uh, occupied, you know, under Russian occupation. Um, we're not gonna. I'm not gonna talk about the moral forces of what's going on here. Although what's interesting is I think I will talk about uh, misinformation and other kind of Orwellian topics as we get a little bit deeper. Um, I think I want to do an episode on that about sort of you know parallels we're seeing and uh, between Russia's misinformation machine and elsewhere and uh, what is probably the closest I'll ever do to actually trying to do the thinking for you. Uh, which is at some point share my, and in greater depth, my own hypothesis that Russia is largely responsible for much of the division uh, and and in particular political conspiracy theory stuff going on in the West. That's for another time. Um, my, I guess I, my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine that have been um, so brutalized by uh, the Russian military. And uh, once again, I will be posting on this episode at reconsidermedia.com uh, links to provide support for the humanitarian missions in Ukraine and in the surrounding countries which are taking in their refugees. And I strongly 
uh, I urge everyone to uh, donate what is comfortable for you um, to support these people. So, on to the show. Uh, today's episode, episode four, My Kingdom for a Plane or Tank. So, it's actually been, you know, it's been my, you know, by golly, nearly 30 days since I've, uh, since I posted on Ukraine, and there's a lot of, a lot of reasons for that, but, um, and so much has happened over the last 30 days that I'm not going to try to recap it at all, but, you know, the war essentially went from um, a moving war to a static war to uh, Russia repositioning after getting their butts kicked, um, sort of up and down, uh, and particularly in the north, in the northeast, uh, but up and down Ukraine, trying to reposition to eastern Ukraine. And... Uh, in order to take the broader Donbass and probably hold the south to have a land bridge to Crimea and and hold Russian-speaking areas and all that stuff and either create a North-South Korea situation or more likely straight-up annex it the way that they did um, Crimea. And what that means is the nature of the war is changing. Um, it's changing to one where uh, you're going to have force-on-force um, conflict where both sides are actually going to be trying to advance um, in certain parts, in different parts. It's likely uh, one thing we know is that sort of outside the Russian-occupied Donbass, p- part of Donbass, the Ukrainians dug some impressive trenches and defensive fortifications uh, that are hard to just take out. So it's hard to advance directly out of there. So right now the Russians are, are trying to do a pincer movement from the northeast and the southeast um, and encircle these Ukrainian troops that are holding the line at the Donbass um, encircle and, of course, destroy them before Ukrainian forces from the Kiev area can come relieve them. Um, you know, I nobody, much less me, but nobody really knows the battlefield situation well enough to be certain of uh, how that's going to go down. But what's interesting is the Russian forces in the north, um, the various intelligence services of... Uh, from Estonia to the United States seem to be predicting that they're so beat up uh, that they're not going to be able to redeploy to the east anytime soon. Um, they need to be refit, refurbished, restocked, resupplied, um, all that re-stuff. Uh, and then they've got a long way to go around. And so anyone who's been thinking about this for a few minutes knows that the Ukrainians want to rush their way over and uh, try to seize the advantage as much as possible and start destroying... Um, you know, destroying and demoralizing uh, Russian units that are there before they can be reinforced because the Ukrainians do seem to have an advantage. But the Ukrainians are moving to the east where Russia is. And so Russia's supply lines are there. They've got tons of artillery on that side. They've got planes on that side. Um, They're much closer to home. And being much closer to home makes it much easier to fight. This is one of the things we identified even a month ago that Russian logistics and supply issues meant that uh, it was going to be very hard to um, very hard to like penetrate deep into Ukraine, and that may have never been the objective. Uh, but it's pretty easy to penetrate into the Donbass um, and the broader Donbass. So uh, what that means is the Ukrainians need some sort of forward operating or some capacity to go on the offensive in a meaningful way. The Ukrainian method, or like they're, they're, I mean, they truly innovated a defensive, a mobile defense 
for the modern war um, that the Russians were not ready for. Uh, but that defense, that, that hit-and-run style defense, which is not new, but we'll talk about what they did differently. Um, but that defense is no longer going to work. Uh, they have to be able to go in and go into the teeth of the Russian military and win battles. But the Russian military may be so demoralized that uh, and possibly spent um, that the Ukrainians can make a show of force uh, and be able to kick some butt. Who knows? Um, by the way, I did mention that mobile defense style. So the Ukrainian mobile defense style, um, you know, usually those hit and run defenses are for uh, non-mobile or against like non-mobile militaries. So occupiers, um, you know, the, the, the Bathists and ISIS folks for a while were pretty good at that uh, against Americans and Iraqi troops. Um, so they'd just be on patrol and you get these hit and runs. But the, you know, and the Vietnamese were pretty good at that for like slow moving American patrols. So hit and run tended to be good for people who, you know, against people who are trying to hold territory. Um, but the Ukrainians got very good at uh, hitting convoys that were on the move and uh, and that is a major innovation. And they also got very good at moving around air defenses um, and keeping those mobile uh, so that the Russians were never able to establish air superiority. This is going to change a little bit as the Russians move east. What's interesting is I started putting the notes together for this show um, much, much earlier. And this was when uh, I started putting the show together when the Poles offered to send a bunch of MiGs over to Ukraine if the United States was going to resupply them. And uh, I wanted to talk about that as a whole, and I will, uh, but the situation has changed. And what's interesting is the planes are probably now more important to the war than they used to be. One of the things I was going to talk about in this show was the fact that the planes may not be all that useful um, in a defensive posture. And there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, but the biggest reason why is that while the Ukrainians are doing a great job of having all these mobile uh mobile anti-air systems and batteries and even rate you know mobile radar um and also just using american radar uh from poland which is pretty dope um it turns out that uh the russians have a fair bit of anti-air stuff themselves and again fighting much closer to russian territory uh russia can bring up sorties of planes much easier so for a while oh sorry but so for for Back when things, back when uh, Ukraine needed planes around Kiev and such, um, those planes were in danger of being shot down, and the United States was suggesting that the uh, Ukrainian military rely more on anti, you know, mobile anti-air from the ground, um, and also doing things like attacking uh, airports where the Russians were trying to move air power forward, and so the Russians kept most of their air power um, to the east, and so planes not all that useful now. Uh, if you're up against Russia in the east, um, yes, Russia has that anti-air, they, you know, that mobile anti-air stuff, and you can bring yours to bear. But Russia being so much closer to home, they can definitely um, make their air power advantage really bear fruit. And that's a big part of why repositioning really matters. And so the Ukrainians probably want airplanes for good reason more than ever. Because uh, if you think about it on paper, going into this war... Um, Russia just has so much more hardware than Ukraine, in particular in the air. So going into the conflict, Ukraine had 132 air, you know, uh, fixed-wing combat aircraft. 
Russia had 10 times as many, 1,391. 10 times as many, 10 to 1. Um, and 20 times as many helicopters. And, uh, it, and their overall defense budget is almost 10 times that of Ukraine's. And so really, it should have been, you know, if you just count, and this is why tank counting is always dangerous um, as a practice, and why kind of everyone's just everyone super duper duper blew it on um, their intelligence that Russia was going to succeed quickly was that, you know, this clearly wasn't enough. And a big part of it, you know, there's so many reasons. There will be many, 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 many PhDs earned on why Russia screwed the pooch so badly in Ukraine. But failure to establish air dominance was a big part of it. And that meant failure to, you know, that meant all sorts of stuff, including um, failure to support convoys uh, and failure to, um, you know, be able to, to move at will, protect artillery, all that stuff. So right now, um, you know, Ukraine wants planes to be able to help itself go on the offensive uh, in the east and try to, um, one, probably move against the Russian flank to the north around Kharkiv, um, and two, potentially hit the south uh, past Kursan once they take that, um, tie down those units, maybe even to be able to make some advances while they try to hold the line at the Donbass. Um, again, they want to they want to support their offensive units, learning the lesson of the Russians. They're probably going to have to have some dogfights too, because uh, the Russians will be bringing their their air power more to bear. They'd also very much like to be able to hit Russian artillery more easily, um, especially the artillery that is like bombing Mariupol into the dirt, um, and finally hit Russian airfields, which might be a little bit easier as they move further east and bring more artillery and missiles to bear. Um, but the West is still supplying Ukraine with mostly um, mostly the kind of weapons that are good for that mobile defense that the Ukrainians did. Again, a truly astounding job of uh, innovating. And uh, the Ukrainian Air Force, uh, like the rest of Ukraine, uh, is doing a pretty good job of so pretty good job of social media. Um, what's interesting is uh, they have a couple tweets from a few days ago saying a few quotes. We have not received the tools we need to defend our sky and achieve victory. In the sky, the greatest need is for fighter jets. F-15s and F-16s of the fourth generation or higher would be sufficient. Pilots can learn to fly these with just two to three weeks of training, end quote. So notice that these guys are anticipating a long war. Um, and again, this is a few days ago, but two to three weeks means they're ready for a knockdown drag out fight. Quote, uh, second tweet, quote, unlike Soviet era MiG-29s, which by the way are the ones the Poles have, uh, these jets are equipped with the advanced technologies used by the enemy, including advanced radar and modern missiles. On the ground, air defense systems can prevent airstrikes and missile strikes. So um, they want to be able to, again, go on the offensive and, and be able to dogfight with these planes and keep uh, Russian missiles being launched at a distance so that the air defense systems um, can deal with them. What's interesting is previously, the reason we were talking about getting Polish MiGs over to the Ukrainians was because the Ukrainians are actually trained on those MiGs. But again, they're kind of old. Um, and so, but the Poles are like the, the one country in NATO that has a bunch of old Soviet technology and also more modern American technology as part of their air force. And so the Poles could have, the Poles could have, and they volunteered to send those planes over to Ukraine um, with... Uh, you know, with the United States just promising to back, you know, backfill them with F-16s. And the Americans said no, which is interesting. 
Um, so why is it so dang hard to get these planes to Ukraine? Because, of course, the Americans and a lot of NATO are saying you don't really need them all that much, but that's not the reason, right? Might as well send them if you can. Now, yes, they're expensive, but um, that's not really the reason, right? NATO, as, as we've talked about before and is kind of obvious, NATO is willing to invest a significant amount of money right now in chewing the Russian military to pieces. This is, in a lot of ways, as much as this is a, a human catastrophe of heart, just heart-wrenching, horrifying proportions, uh, from a strategic perspective for NATO, this is great. Because you've got Russia not only like humiliating itself on the world stage, but really just expending tons and tons and tons of hardware and money and fuel and people that it cannot recover because its economy is weak. Um, and Russia, the longer Russia just kind of keeps throwing meat into the grinder, the weaker it becomes. And so, of course, if they could, NATO would send a bunch of planes to Ukraine because it's like, look, you can use these and blow up a bunch of Russians. We're in. Right. NATO would love that. So why is it so dang hard? Well, importantly, flying combat planes from any NATO territory into Ukraine could look a whole lot like an act of war. Russia might shoot them down. Russia may blame, you know, if if a bunch of F-16s are flying into Ukraine and then a few things happen to blow up um, in eastern Ukraine that happen to be Russian, it's going to be a little hard to be certain that, you know, it didn't look like a provocation from the West. It didn't look like an attack from the West. Even if you have Ukrainians flying them, even if you have them in Ukrainian colors at this point, which you totally would, um, you know, you could have a bunch of Ukrainians in Warsaw just fly them out. Um, what the Poles want to do is send them to Germany and say, it's your problem, America and Germany. Here's an American base in Germany. You fly them in. And the Americans and Germans said, no, we don't want to do that either. Again, because we don't want to look like we're attacking, uh, you know, that we're, that we're sending attacks into the theater of operations. Um, now, could you just send them via train? Not really. They're too big. Right. So people are like, why not just drag them in? How? They are massive. They're absolutely gargantuan. And, um, you know, a, an F-16 has a length of like 50 feet and a wingspan of 33. An F-15 has a length of 64 feet and a wingspan of like 49. I'm probably a little bit off, but not much. I mean, they're huge. And so you can't take them on normal roads. You can't take them on normal railways. Um, you just can't really get them around other than by flying them. Um, you know, these planes are literally flown out of the factory. That's how they get them out. So it's really just a, um, you know, it's really just a, uh, logistical impossibility to get these planes into Ukraine other than by flying them. And you don't want to fly them. Now, could you get tricky? Could you fly them to Moldova, um, or Kosovo, some technically neutral country? Well, that's a little rough because, uh, you know, you don't want, like, Moldova doesn't want to piss off the Russians because if the Russians lob a bunch of missiles at Moldova, Moldova is screwed because what are they going to do about it? Or what's NATO going to do about it, right? Moldova doesn't have any way to stand up to Russia, so they're not going to volunteer. Um, you know, these other neutral countries aren't going to volunteer either. They're neutral. And so NATO doesn't want to do it because then you might have a war with Russia and NATO, and non-aligned countries don't want to do it even though they hate Russia. Because you don't want a war with Russia either. So, um, but it is interesting that you like, there are some things that you could figure out if you want to. So, 
Um, again, I think like people have people have suggested Kosovo because Russia doesn't recognize Kosovo, and therefore Kosovo to the Russians is still technically part of Serbia. Now, of course, this is all a bunch of like uh, very transparent BS, and so you know you kind of go seriously. It's like, does that transparent BS matter, right? Because you know, it's still it's still NATO planes flying in, uh, but it's technically from Kosovo, which the Russians is technically from Serbia. But come on, really? Especially since Kosovo wants to join the European Union and NATO. So, but anyway, this would just all be trickery, where technically these planes would be flying in from Serbia, at least according to the Russians. And so, you know, are such trickeries workable? Does this does this happen? And like actually kind of does and we've seen this in history where fictions matter and i'm gonna get to this a little bit later in the show but like maybe that's the theme of the show is that fictions matter to people so you know it's a little bit risky to do something like that it's actually quite risky which is why nobody's doing that um but the you know the cool part is of course since serbia's you know technically doing it doesn't put nato at risk like that and we've seen stuff like this happen in the past. So, um, you know, during the Korean War, Russian planes actually flew against Americans. So Soviet Russian planes flew against and shot at Americans um, and killed Americans. But they were painted as Chinese. And when they got knocked down um, and captured, they said that they were like Russian volunteers that went to China to fly Chinese planes against Americans, even though it was clearly not happening. And everyone knew and agreed it was a fiction to avoid an escalation. So um, it's also the case that that's why the Korean War was considered a police action and not a war, because you didn't want to be at war with the Soviets, because if you're at war with the Soviets, people freak out and things get escalated. Um, now, you might look at this and say, like, wow, you know, humans are really, uh, humans are really easy to manipulate. But these fictions matter to humans. We are a storytelling society, and the stories we tell ourselves are kind of how we get through life. Um, we are easily fooled, typically by ourselves, right? We typically tell stories about our, you know, about our life where we're the hero and somebody else who disagrees with us is the villain. Everyone who drives on the road thinks that they're a great driver and that everyone else is the idiot, right? These are stories we tell ourselves. And they matter a lot in diplomacy um, because, again, like a big part of it is that you have to get um, you have to get like your people on board with something in order to kind of like get action for it, especially if you're a democracy. So, um, you know, for example, in Crimea, Russians had the like little green men thing. They just said they weren't in it until the fate accompli was done. And then there was like really no way to do anything about it. Now, it is the case that, of course, American intelligence knew that the Russians were in Crimea and they could claim it all they wanted. But because there was just enough doubt about it, uh, you couldn't get, you know, it wasn't going to happen anyway. But it's the kind of thing where you couldn't get American support to do something. Um, again, important in democracies, you need the support of your population. This is a feature as well as a bug. Um, but... You, you know, but because the Russians were just kind of in denial about it happening and made it just secret enough um, or just quiet enough, it went a long way for them. Um, and so, you know, a big 
a big part of what's going on is that there's like precedent to be had here. And this is, again, this has been true since Korea, that um, Russia can't let NATO, quote, get away with combat operations against it and vice versa. So they are willing to agree on these fictions. This is why there were proxy wars during the Cold War. This is a lot like the Cold War, just a little hotter. Um where you have these proxy wars where like you mostly just fund other people to fight. And it is the case that the Russians will fund the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese to fight the Americans and the Americans will fund the Afghans to fight the Russians. And like, that's fair game because everyone's agreed that it's fair game and cyber attacks are fair game because everyone's agreed it's fair game. But what's interesting is like, just because of how human brains work with like tribes and and how we tell stories about war if you know you can you can have an american built american paid for trained by americans shipped by americans javelin missile um as long as it's used by a ukrainian to blow up a russian tank it's totally fine if it's used by an american to blow up, blow up a russian tank you've got a lot of problems um, even if the American is using, you know, using Ukraine trained, Ukraine supplied, Ukraine purchased weapons, um, cyber attacks, again, same thing, like should be an act of war, right? They can cost a lot of money. They do property damage, um, usually not physical property damage, but like people's property gets destroyed. If the Russians like sabotaged, I don't know, like a bank, right? And blew it up. That would be a problem, even if nobody died, but cyber attacks are fine, um, or at least not an act of war. So if, if you get deep into diplomacy and how it's thought of, um, it's very, very weird. Uh, and again, the storytelling really matters because that's just how human brains work. It's one of the things that you know Biden was really, really good at um, at the beginning or leading up to and at the beginning of this war was calling exactly what the Russians were going to do. Right. And even when he was wrong, it was it seemed to be that the Russians backed down. But he said, you know, look, Russia's going to invade. They're going to invade big time. Um, and like then they're, and then what they're going to do is have all these false flag operations where they're going to pretend that it was because uh, Ukrainians had massacred a bunch of Russian speaking Ukrainians. They're going to have this false flag operation. They're going to pretend that it, this is happening. That didn't happen because Biden had called it. But because like Biden had called this from a mile away and a lot of people doubted it, you know, even Zelensky was saying like, hey, calm down, you know, like we don't want to alarm anybody. Um, you know, at the time, he was a very different guy. He like sort of transformed once the once the invasion happened. But that storytelling that, you know, that that what sorry, what Biden did was robbed Russia of the of the ability to take the initiative in telling the story and say, this is the story, go prove it wrong. Um, so Biden had the initiative. He said, this is the story, prove it wrong. And he happened to be right. And when you make predictions and you turn out to be right, you look like a real badass. Um, and so you have tons of initiative and you're very believable and counter stories against you start sounding unbelievable because again, what you predicted was right. And so it looks like your source really knows what they're talking about. Um, so again, it was a coup of diplomacy. I was very impressed by it. And, um, and that need to have the, um, that need to have like the initiative in storytelling about this stuff is, turns out it's incredibly effective. It's something that Trump does really, really well is he comes out and, and takes the initiative in the story. He'll just say whatever he wants. 
Um, and now, one of the things he's brilliant at is he will deny that he said something if someone tries to hold it against him, or he'll just distract, he'll come up with something new, um, you, you know, and he's wrong all the time. He's, I don't know if he's wrong more than he's right, but, you know, he just makes things up and sometimes things work out for him. Um, but by having the initiative, he's able to, you know, make others fall back on their heels. The Russians have done the same for a while, and they especially do it internally. Um, it's really interesting how the Russian propaganda playbook matches a lot of right-wing conspiracies so much. Um, you know, the Russians are claiming that the Ukrainians have a bunch of crisis actors, that they uh, set, you know, that they set up stuff like Buka on their own, um, and and that they like paid people to pretend, or or maybe they blew up their own people. Um, and they they're so good at this, and they've been they've been so effective at drawing these conspiracies that you have Tucker Carlson on Fox News saying, "Well, how do we know the Ukrainians didn't do this? I'm just asking the question, right?" Um, which is horrifying, right? But the Russians claim that they claim that the mainstream media um, is a big liberal conspiracy. They claim that like the West is a big liberal left wing conspiracy um, against them, right? There's this huge conspiracy of many, many actors against us. Um, and they all are acting just because they hate us. Um, again, this is how like Trump talks about every news outlet that doesn't fawn over him. And a lot of people believe it. Um, the Russian Russian uh, social media trolls, they doctor photos of Zelensky to make him look like a Nazi, like literally just holding up Nazi flags when he doesn't do that. Um, they have claims that there are like biolabs that the Americans and the Ukrainians run, right? You remember that claim? And then they just kind of dropped it because it didn't get traction because they don't care. Um, they're just trying to see what sticks. Um uh, they have claims literally about pedophile rings in Ukraine, right? Which is something that we hear about in the United States. Like Pizzagate was all about these pedophile rings, as wild as that sounds. Um, they talk about like a villa that Biden has in Ukraine and that Biden is in cahoots with the corrupt Nazi uh, Ukrainian government to encroach on Russia and, and you know, threaten Russia. Right, all this stuff where you look at it, you're like, man, that looks a lot like conspiracies you hear from the dregs and, and like kind of primordial soup of the Internet um, in the United States. And so this reinforces for me my theory that a lot of like conspiracy BS in the U.S. has been deliberately cultivated by Russia for years. Um, and what's interesting is like if there's a lot, I think if there's a lot of what's going on in Russia that looks like a lot of the crazy stuff in the U.S., there's a reason these look so similar. Um, you know, these guys are scientists here. They understand that pedophilia stuff, you, you, like it really, really rubs people the wrong way. And for good reason, right? People don't want their kids to be molested. And so, you know, you, you talk about pedophilia over and over again and people's brains go like, well, there's gotta be something to it. Right. Um, and so you can just make that stuff up and they figured out that there's certain stuff. If you make it up, people are inclined to believe it. Um, and then you can get on a roll. Right. We've talked about before that, like a lot of Facebook groups, I don't know what percentage, but like some meaningful number of Facebook groups that were pro Sanders and pro Trump in 2016 because they didn't want Clinton to be president were run by Russian troll farms. And I still believe that the Russians are. Um, see, I said I was going to talk about this in a later episode, but here we are. Um, I still believe a lot of Russian troll farms are the source of some of the crazier conspiracy theories that are popping up in the West a lot. 
you know, it wouldn't surprise me if the Russians were like, you know what, with this pandemic thing, like that could unite people. Let's make sure they stay divided and say like, oh, it's 5G towers. It's a conspiracy by the Jews. It's, you know, like Jewish space lasers. Yes. Um, you know, all that stuff. And and like they keep just chucking stuff out there and it doesn't matter if it sticks or not, as long as you have something that sticks. So it's a really, you know, it's a really good um it's a really good tactic if you're just trying to sh- sow disinformation and dissent. Um, you also have this, uh, you also have like the ability then to, to have false flag operations happen. So again, this is something Trump did really well, where he called ahead of time. Again, remember when I said that Biden looked really smart for calling his shots? As crazy as it sounds, Trump did that in 2020, where he said, like, even though he didn't know why this would be the case, he just said over and over and over again, like, this will be a corrupt, fraudulent election, right? And of course, was he going to do anything to fix that? Well, no, because he can't, because of course, it's the Democrats. It's a conspiracy, right? I can't do anything about it, Um, but it's going to be corrupt. It's going to be fraudulent. Uh, Yep. And then, and it's because he knew he was going to lose, or he knew it was likely he would lose, and so, uh, and so, but the thing is, it doesn't even matter because he wins either way, right? He's like, oh, I won despite the fraud. I must have been really popular or I lost and it was because of fraud. And so, um, you know, similarly, the Russians plant this stuff out there and allows them to prep false flag operations. And the, the way that Biden counters it is he says these false flag operations are about to happen. So heads up for them. Um, and so it, it takes the teeth out of them. Um, but there's the minister of foreign affairs in Ukraine said something clever about this. He said, quote, the manic obsession with which various Russian officials fantasize about non-existent biological or chemical weapons or hazards in Ukraine is deeply troubling and may actually point at Russia preparing another horrific false flag operation. This tweet is for the record, right? So that's like the way that they're trying to counter this misinformation leading up to false flag operations, which the Russians could then use in retrospect to justify what they're doing to their own people. Because it is important in Russia, as much as you have a totalitarian regime going on, it used to be authoritarian, it's now totalitarian. um, It is very important for Russia to have support from its people, Like, if its people knew that Russia was, like, torturing and slaughtering and raping um, civilians en masse uh, in occupied Ukraine and that, you know, and all all the other stuff that's going on, right, that they were just, like, you know, turning cities into dust— Right. You'd, you'd have some problems. And so the Russian propaganda machine needs to keep cranking and keep people distracted um, and keep pumping out stuff about how evil the Ukrainians are so that when stuff trickles in about what's really going on, there's a mix of and this is again, this is part of the playbook. There's a mix of we didn't do it, but if we did it, it's not our it's not our fault. We were forced to do it. And by the way, they deserved it. And between those three things, you can you can get some rationalization from different people. Again, like a lot of Republicans do this where they're like, well, Trump didn't lie. But if he did, it wasn't his fault or like Trump won the election. But if he didn't, it was because of fraud. And and uh, if it wasn't fraudulent, then it sure looked fraudulent. And so we should have you know done more to investigate it. Right. Um, so, you know, no matter what I win or no matter what I'm right, Biden should be president. So you see a lot of these things parallel. It's very interesting. Um, so getting back to the planes, right? There was a time it seemed all moot um, because of the air cover, you know, the air defense cover issue, but it might not be anymore. 
Um, people are now talking about, do we need to send some tanks to Ukraine? Now, can you send old T-72s? Will they be able to um, deal with the T-80s and the, the T-90s in particular, right? T-72s just can't really go toe-to-toe with them. And so the Americans are continuing to try to use kind of like cheaper, more mobile weapons that they can ship en masse pretty quickly and afford and um, to try to give the Ukrainians a bit of an advantage. And so, um, you know, the Ukrainians are capable of being quite creative. So from a U.S. official, quote, The Ukrainians, again, have been very creative in how they're defending themselves and how they're using the air power they have available to them. Frankly, they haven't proven they need to do more than they're doing. Again, this was in the defensive war. They've been very effective with the tools that they have, very creatively so, and those are having good effect on Russian air power. Um, Nonetheless, Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky has urged NATO countries to provide Ukraine with more fighter jets. the same defense official said that uh, beyond Ukraine's fixed-wing fighters, of which 56 remained uh, in mid-March, the Ukrainians have made effective use of drones, uh, noting that they are, quote, cheap and can fly before, below radar coverage. Quote, it's a very nimble platform, and they're using them with terrific effect, particularly against Russian ground units, the official said. Um, similarly, the Ukrainians are using surface-to-air missiles, quote, with great effect against Russian forces, the official said, quote, they're being careful of what they're shooting at, they're moving stuff around, they're being very nimble, and it's proven effective. And I'm not just talking about mobile launchers, I'm talking about use of shoulder-fire surface-to-air capability as well. Um, and in a recent $800 million assistance package, which for Ukraine, by the way, is a lot of money, $800 million bucks is well over 15% of the entire annual defense budget of Ukraine, um, so it sent quite a big package in uh, in mid-March that included 800 Stinger anti-aircraft systems, right? Remember that Russia has barely, you know, probably has fewer than 1,000 aircraft left, or something like 1,000 aircraft left. It's in, in its entire Air Force. Um, 2,000 Javelin uh, and 1,000 other light anti-armor weapons um, and 6,084 anti-armor systems to deal with Russia's many, many tanks. 100 tactical unmanned aerial systems, that's drones, Um, And then a bunch of lighter stuff for uh, killing people. Um, Most importantly, the uh, switchblade slash suicide drone is uh, what got sent. And I think I think this is really what's going to be the um, what's really going to be the the difference maker here is uh, most of if not all of those. You know, there's only 100 those tactical unmanned aerial systems. Uh, they are small. What's interesting is one-time use drones. And so that's the kind of thing that the Ukrainians probably want more of. This is different from the Turkish drones that they were using um, that can just kind of like fly around for a while, launch a missile, and then go home and stay under radar, um, under radar cover. The, the tactical unmanned aerial systems are really, really, um, they're really short or they're fairly short range, um, but they can be deployed incredibly quickly. Um, as part of a response force, and what they can do is they can go, um, they can go give like an airport or anything like that a really hard time, um, and that allows the Ukrainians to have a form of air power, um, which again is quite cheap, uh, quite mobile, quite replaceable, usable by anyone, um, and you know potentially gives them quite the advantage, where they can, for example, go after an airport, blow it up, and then right after that have a quick sortie of their few planes that they have remaining, um, uh, you know, 56 or so, in order to blow some stuff up on in the east. And so the Ukrainians do have 
the ability to be pretty creative with the stuff that they have. Um, and what they realize, what they likely realize they need to do is again, like not necessarily win by crushing the, the Russian army completely by like grinding up everything, but by demoralizing the troops and interrupting, uh, you know, interrupting them enough, uh, you know, making life hard enough that the troops just don't have the, the will or ability to really move forward. It's a big part of what, um, slowed the Russian advance in the north is it just got, you know, they realized they're going into a meat grinder. They're going into this really spiky hedgehog around Kiev. Um, and they just after enough times of doing that and seeing their friends get blown up, they didn't want to. Now, after stuff like Buka, I hope nobody has any sympathy for the average Russian soldier because they were willing to do this or willing to stand by and watch it happen. Right. This is like worse than what the Nazis were doing. Um, at least in their war, right? The 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 World War II's, you know, atrocities um, were just less less prone to happen. Like the the Germans wouldn't just slaughter a village once they got there, nor would the Soviets. But um, but these these you know these kids, they see their friends get blown up enough times. They see enough, you know, as they're going through to like reattack. They see enough just like husks of tanks with Z's on them. Uh, they go like, you know what? This is a bad idea. And so it becomes really hard to get them motivated. You know, again, they start like puncturing their own fuel tanks, stuff like that. Now morale is probably going to be a little bit higher out east. Um, it's close to Russia's borders. Um, you know, it's with Russian speaking people, especially in the Donbass itself, or at least occupied Donbass, you know, you have, uh, support from, you know, the local separatists. Um, uh, and so it's going to be easier to like hold the Donbass, probably not going to be easy to necessarily hold the area north of that. Um, and if the Ukrainians can, can, um, you know, take a lot of that back, the, it's going to be a little bit harder to encircle the Ukrainians and really make a decisive move, um, to to advance in the east. But again, the Russians are close to home. Um, and so the Russians can fire a lot of ordnance from over the border. And, uh, you know, as much as this is a war of attrition, the Ukrainians would ideally not like to uh, win the war by having the Russians send all of their missiles and artillery shells and just run out. Um, and so thus, um, the Ukrainians would still like a lot more planes and even something like 30 of them would be of great help. Um, and very interested to see how this war evolves as it moves east. Um, I am uh, optimistic for Ukraine, but again, being so close to Russia's border changes a lot. Um, I just don't know, uh, you know, how much the scuttlebutt moves through the Russian military um, ground troops and how much they are, um, you know, how much they are like deeply demoralized by what's happened. Because if they are, uh, Ukraine's got a much better chance. So, um, my heart goes out to Ukraine um, and the people there. Uh, I am rooting for them as day 41 turns into day 42 of this war. Um, so with that, uh, Slava Ukraini. Uh, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. This is Eric signing off, and I'll see you uh, hopefully soon with another update on the war.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.